Hello, welcome to the next RevDem episode. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska and I am the RevDem editor. And today uh, with me is Dr. Molly Krasnodemska and she's an international relations scholar. And last year she has published a book, Politics of Stigmatization, Poland as a Latecomer in the European Union. And now she is the head of the political and economic department in the Polish embassy in Iceland. And in this interview, she will present her own views and uh, she will not present the uh, viewpoint of the Polish state. So welcome, Dr. Krasnodemska. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for accepting the invitation. And today we will talk about the book that she has recently published. Uh, and I would like to start our conversation with, uh, with some problem, the main problem that you raise in your book, because one of the main arguments uh, that you raise is that the EU member states are quite not equal when it comes to the determination of the goals of the EU foreign policy. And there is a split between old Europe and the new Europe. So could you explain how this cultural division translates itself into the stigmatization discourse within the EU and what this stigmatization actually consists of. My book, relevance and the way that it shapes um, European politics. And uh, even though two decades after the, almost two decades after the Eastern enlargement, it is really uh, difficult and doesn't make much sense to refer to the new newer members which joined after 2004 as new members as they have been part of the EU for some time. Um, but nevertheless, a certain hierarchy still exists between the so-called established members, so the members which joined uh, before 2004 and these, um, these newer member states. And I will also refer to them for simplification sometimes as newer member states. Um, and I argue that these hierarchies impact uh, European politics, for example, in the way that, um, that they affect who shapes a common uh, foreign policy in the EU. Uh, I characterize this stigma as a latecomer stigma, uh, which means that um, what it in effect means is that the, the newer member states are not yet, have not yet fully reached the status as full and established members of this imaginary community. Um, and I argue that uh, not having the status of um, full membership in the sense uh, that I will later uh, elaborate shapes the foreign policy. And in my book, I look at Poland and, and um, argue that, um, uh, that it shapes uh, Poland's foreign policy since joining Western institutions, so particularly uh, NATO and the EU. And uh, the sources of the stigma are most of all this late membership status. So as late joiners, these countries did not really participate in the creation of the EU institutions. And uh, they basically had to join a system that was already in place. And uh, they, their um, policies had to be um, kind of uh, shaped by this uh, idea of uh, and, and practical, um, uh, yeah, practical consequences of having to adjust to something that was already there and to adapt. Uh, the other thing is the stigma of uh, communism, 
being having been a part of the Eastern Bloc uh, as part of a division of Europe, they have been cut off from the rest of Europe through this through this process. Uh, having experienced Soviet imperialism, either as satellite states or actually being part of the Soviet Union, they had, they didn't really have sovereignty or only in a limited extent. So they couldn't really determine their own foreign policy until, um, until the fall of communism, basically. And this is another, another source of the stigma, but also a stigmatization of Eastern Europe is something that goes has deeper historical roots. It goes all the way back at least to the Enlightenment, as for example, uh, Larry Wolf argues in his famous book. And um, for Poland, this, is, this has been particularly um, uh, significant from the time around the partitions where it lost its sovereignty, its territory was divided for over a century. And so it couldn't partake in certain processes that were that shaped basically a modern uh, Europe and a modern international system. It only had to catch up in a, in a very limited period of time between uh, the two world wars and then was again um, subjected to, to um, you know, division, territorial divisions and invasion. Um, yes, and um, so all this has shaped a certain ontological insecurity in relation to the West, which plays such an important role in, in Poland's perception of itself, so the West and, and Europe specifically. So I just wanted to say that I wouldn't necessarily talk about uh, cultural divisions between East and West, uh, because this can be misleading, and actually the assumption that there are some essential or fundamental differences between the Eastern and Western European member states is in itself problematic because it's, it's essentialist. Um, and also in terms of uh, cultural traits, uh, these countries share as much as, 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 as they uh, don't have in common, like language uh, or religion, uh, for example. Uh, but what connects them is a certain common historical experience that is particularly of the 20th century, particularly of the second part, so after 45. And this uh, translates into uh, commonalities foreign policy, strategic culture. So uh, certain fundamental um, ideas underlining uh, security and assumptions about security. Thank you for that. Uh, it's kind of powerful statement sometimes for some people that uh, there is no cultural division between East and West. And uh, I wanted to uh, perhaps uh, follow up on that and ask a question about uh, what this stigma consists of when it comes for, uh, to um, discourses that come from the West. I mean, what kind of uh, narratives or what kind of statements would you um, associate with this kind of uh, stigmatization? Um, in different areas, I mean, there's certainly an economic component, uh, which still continues to shape. Of course, these countries had a, a poor starting perspective, also changed a little bit. So one of the things is, um, yeah, for example, I mean, I deal specifically with foreign policy and it was mainly the question that um, there is a, there are certain common EU foreign policy norms, and because these countries 
have a different uh, experience, they do not quite understand these foreign policy norms or they have to adjust. So in the time that I look at, um, it's um, one of the examples is, for example, the relation with Russia. There was a perception in the EU, uh, I will talk about this probably later, um, that you know, a postmodern kind of security actor tries to um, improve relations with other countries through dialogue, that um, Russia can be in an equal way socialized through dialogue. And um, for, for example, for Poland and the Baltic states, there was always um, a traditional view that there is a security threat that could always reemerge, which is where, for example, the um, strong emphasis on a permanent role of the US in Europe as a security provider comes from. And um, yeah, this is just one of the examples. But uh, I, I think the main thing is that this uh, latecomer stigma is also in a certain, always in a certain way linked to, um, to not having quite made a transformation process that is necessary because of a certain division, because of the experience of communism, because of the um, transition to democracy and economic transition, institutional transition, and um, yeah, to name a few. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, a question that I really wanted to ask based on your book is the question about the role of Habermas and Derrida uh, in constructing this kind of public narratives of two Europes. So you mentioned in your book, uh, their article, uh, and it seems uh, that it had a great impact on the European debate. So could you perhaps expand a bit on that? Yeah, the article did have a big impact. It appeared uh, during the, um, the Iraq crisis and uh, it had a big impact because it both described a division that was already there um, and that created certain insecurities on both sides um, leading up to the Eastern enlargement of, of Europe. But it also created a narrative that lingered in the debate about European identity. Uh, so basically the article talked about this avant-garde identity of Europe as a, as a postmodern security actor, um, which was very much linked to an em emancipation from uh, the United States. And it, um, it criticized the US invasion of Iraq as being, um, you know, based on outdated visions of, of security, this kind of preventative war, but also criticized uh, the countries that supported this, this division. And um, this article was later referenced by both those that supported uh, this narrative, uh, but also by the politicians and public intellectuals of, um, of the new Europe and defending uh, their position. And that's why it, it, it had such a big impact because it really started this, this discourse. It really gave it a, a name in a way. Um, of course, the division Old Europe, New Europe wasn't uh, invented by these, um, uh, by, by these philosophers, but uh, it was actually, uh, after, it was actually Donald Rumsfeld who said this term first, but it kind of stuck around and acquired a very different meaning than originally intended. So Old Europe uh, in, in this discourse, um, uh, 
at least how Habermas and Derrida use it was this positive example of a Europe that is established, that has moved on, that has acquired a new identity and Europe are these countries that still need to um, undergo a certain process to evolve to these, um, to, to really be, become part of this, uh, this uh, avant-garde Europe. And uh, the Iraq crisis was so significant because it brought to light certain underlying issues uh, connected to the upcoming enlargement. And, and it revealed these uh, differences in strategic culture between the old and new members, but also brought to the surface certain anxieties concerning this, this upcoming enlargement, which then happened uh, just a year after this crisis. So yeah, like I said before, uh, the newer member states uh, were sort of more traditional security actors. Uh, they, they didn't, it wasn't so much about the US um, and, and really being uh, also um, very uh, dedicated members of uh, NATO as an alliance that they also had fairly recently joined. And so uh, there are many books uh, talking about the Iraq crisis and in international relations and European studies um, about, about this aspect. But what my book in particular emphasizes is that this crisis really established a discourse that subsequently shaped the relations between these countries and the rest of Europe. And I also argue that it in an extent shaped Poland's foreign policy because it showed that simply becoming a member of the EU and of NATO, that in itself was not enough to achieve the status as a full member uh, to basically cancel the status as outsider that it had before. And um, yes, and, and a lot of its foreign policy was later uh, focused on, on overcoming this discourse um, that was created during the crisis. Yeah, we are now opening the new um, field of, of our conversation because you started talking about Iraq and this is precisely what I wanted to ask you about now. So um, as you argue, the stigmatization discourse forces the stigmatized to embrace two strategies actually. Either it, it contests the stigma or it tries to adapt to the so-called Goffmanian's normals. And as you focus mostly on the Polish case, could you briefly explain how these two strategies played out in the Polish foreign policy between exactly these years that you focus on? So 2003, 2014. So in other words, in which cases Poland embraced its stigma and when it rebelled against it? Yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily say, uh, or I wouldn't actually at all say embrace the stigma because actually all the uh, foreign policy approaches that I look at are aimed at overcoming this latecomer status, which, uh, which was the, uh, the source of, um, of Poland's stigma and uh, of its insecurity in relation to the West. Uh, but rather it is between alternating, uh, so alternating between two approaches of dealing with stigma and aim that aim at overcoming it. And, I refer to these two approaches as contestation and adaptation. And um, the first, the contestation, um, uh, it, it's basically 
an attempt to challenge the discourse that constructed the stigma in, a, in the first place. So maybe the best uh, example is uh, the Iraq crisis that I just, or it's a very visible example, uh, the Iraq crisis that I just talked about where basically Poland and the, the other new members signed the letter supporting the US invasion. And then uh, later Polish leaders claimed that you know, Germany and France do not have the right to, to dictate its foreign policy choices. This open disagreement with um, Paris and Berlin um, became more than just about the Iraq war, but it became about determining its, uh, its foreign policy, like the right to determine its foreign policy position and not, not adjusting while on the verge of, of EU membership. And it be, became about challenging this idea that um, these countries should accept somehow a second class status or that's how they perceived uh, that they uh, that they were expected to do. And um, in the case of adaptation, it uh, focuses on overcoming stigma by meeting expectations. So an example is uh, would be the Ukraine crisis and especially Poland's Eastern um, policy leading up to the Ukraine crisis. So, uh, so before going back a little bit, uh, Poland was criticized um, specifically for its Eastern policy that was very, um, that was perceived as very confrontational and provocative towards Russia, especially under the first peace government. So between uh, 2005 and 2007. And um, so when the new government came to power under Prime Minister Donald Tusk, the, um, the strategy was to change the Eastern policy and uh, to pursue a, a foreign policy of rapprochement with Russia to improve the relations. And uh, also uh, they, for example, abandoned uh, the idea of EU membership for Ukraine in the future. This was a topic was not really talked about, but instead the East, it uh, proposed the Eastern partnership um, uh, together with Sweden, also an older member state. And so, um, uh, the, uh, yes, and uh, basically as a, as a lighter for, to offer something that was uh, uh, a lighter form of integration with the Eastern uh, partners and um, then the membership. And so um, this uh, foreign policy was then continued during the Ukraine crisis. It was very much focused on acting together with the EU and avoiding the perception of uh, Poland as a difficult partner. Um, and it did receive a lot of international praise initially, but it also, um, when the security situation escalated, Poland also didn't uh, really play a decisive role anymore in resolving the security situation. It was other member states that actually took over. And actually, I should add, the EU itself also ceased to play uh, an important role once uh, after the annexation of Crimea. There are many threats that are important here, and we will come back to some of them later on in our conversation. But now I wanted to ask about the general international response to the Poland's action. I mean, what are the consequences of rebelling against the stigma or trying to contestate it? Or, um, and uh, connected to that, which strategy proved to be more efficient in changing the underlying hierarchies within the EU? and more 
proved to be more successful for the Polish leadership role in Eastern Europe? So the, the problem with uh, responding uh, to stigmatization and the awareness of stigma is that the response is by nature reactive to the stigma. So it is always problematic for the subject and that it always creates, a, the stigma really creates this kind of vicious, vicious uh, circle for, for the relationship between the subject and the Goffmanian normals. So uh, contestation um, where, is where an actor, uh, you know, tries to directly tackle the stigma. It is, uh, it, it leads to a situation that is uh, confrontational with, uh, with the community of normals. Um, so because of that, it, it affirms actually certain negative expectations about the actor and often leads to more stigmatization and negative labeling and further exclusion. Um, so, uh, however, contestation definitely gives the actor more agency. So that was also the case in, in, in the case of Poland, it, it gave agency. Um, but even where I would say uh, it was the right approach in, in these cases, it it didn't create uh, the lasting change because it didn't receive enough support. So uh, I'm specifically referring to the Russo-Georgian war where uh, Poland uh, together with, um, with the Baltic states and Ukraine pursued a parallel approach to, um, to, the, um, to, to, the, uh, to the French president uh, um, who represented uh, the EU in a way France had the EU president, the council presidency at the time. Um, but uh, so this was a parallel initiative um, which aimed basically at uh, forcing the EU to stand up more to Russia and to take a harder stance in response to the war rather than the mediating approach that Sarkozy wanted to take at the time. Uh, yes, but um, but like I said, it, it didn't really uh, create a lasting change. And uh, maybe if it had, if the, if the um, position of the newer member states had been seriously taken at the time, maybe we wouldn't have the security situation that we are faced with now. Um, adaptation on the other hand, uh, certainly improved Poland's image as, as a good European, basically as a reliable partner. Um, but I don't think it eventually led for Poland to have the leadership role that the government had hoped for that it would, for example, during the Ukraine crisis. Uh, and this is because through adaptation, basically the subject um, risks to become more trapped in this sort of hierarchical relationship because actions are aimed at disproving the stigma, admitting expectations by, um, by directly disproving the stigma. And so it doesn't uh, give much agency, therefore it doesn't lead to much emancipation. Um, yes. I was abacked by what you referred to. I mean, the words by Jacques Chirac, who said about the European states that they missed the chance to stay silent in the context of the Iraqi war. It was really like, it wasn't a long time ago, but still it makes me shiver when I think about that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you now about the ongoing debate on democratic backsliding, because now it seems that it is also stigmatizing somehow Poland. Uh, 
especially in the context of the Polish reforms within the judiciary. So can I ask you if you would also classify it, uh, this discourse, this narrative as a stigmatization and bashing and why? Uh, yes, I would. Um, so on the one hand, uh, these kinds of controversies regarding, for example, the judicial reform and whether it complies with EU law, debates regarding the rule of law, controversies uh, about this subject matter. Also more recently, for example, the question if uh, EU law has precedence over uh, national constitutions of member states. All these are sort of uh, debates and um, and arguments that are also expected with uh, European integration. Uh, however, on the, the other hand, the way that this dispute is taking place, it sort of goes beyond the subject matter, which is a legal one, but it, it is actually a political debate about power relations in the EU. And because of that, I would, uh, I would specifically classify that this is very similar to the debates on foreign policy that I uh, that I describe in my book. And so it is about power relations for, for, the, for Poland. It has uh, really become about um, a question about national sovereignty. And uh, for the commission, it has also become about its power in relation to the member states. Uh, so this is also one of the reasons why this dispute has become so difficult to resolve and uh, to find compromises on that. And uh, also the entire dispute is really taking place in this verbal space of, of uh, labeling um, public. And uh, uh, yes, but of course, if, uh, if for example, the, the threat of economic sanctions that is uh, often talked about if Poland doesn't comply, and if, if that would materialize, it would be also a different form of stigmatization by exclusion or punishment, basically. So it, it would have a new, new form. Um, but I think that in general, this kind of um, verbal stigmatizing has become, uh, apart from, from this specific example, has become... Uh, has started to play a greater role in, in politics as a tool of conducting politics. And it has probably also to do with the changing media landscape. Yeah, of course. Uh, you mentioned also uh, in one of your, of your previous uh, responses, the vicious circle that the state can somehow uh, starts to respond to the stigma in, and uh, attacks the, the stigmatizer. So in parallel to stigmatization of Poland in the EU, we can observe a similar bashing of the EU institutions in Poland. So for example, the commission. So how could we make this vicious circle of stigmatization stop actually? Yeah, I, I think that I should uh, also clarify the difference between stigmatization and stigma. So stigmatization is, um, is basically a political tool or a discursive tool of um, creating labels. So this kind of verbal shaming. And this, uh, as, a, as a basically, as a tool of conducting politics, it can be successful or unsuccessful. Uh, but stigma is a little bit different in the sense that it is uh, that it is a label that sticks, you may say. So it is one that is uh, significant uh, enough that it really becomes part or affects um, the particular actor's identity and also its relation to 
like the the community of reference so uh, yeah and um so as i tried to show in, in the book the problem of poland's ontological insecurity that is connected to its stigma as a latecomer is uh something that is uh quite fundamental in the sense that it really shapes its strategic culture. And it is also something that outlasts, um, uh, like strategic culture as a, as a concept are these uh, fundamental ideas about security and actors place in the international environment. And uh, these ideas outlast uh, often generations of, um, of policymakers, which does not mean that strategic cultures cannot evolve and uh, cannot change over time. Uh, so um, I really see the, the quest of recognition um, and, the, uh, and overcoming the ontological security in relation to the West um, that is based on its historical experience as a, some kind of an existential problem in, in the case of Poland and, um, and probably uh, the Central and Eastern European countries that uh, share these historical experiences in a similar way, of course, with certain differences between them. So I wouldn't really, uh, I would refrain to use this um, analysis to give policy advice, um, but rather I, I really try to show some underlying mechanisms that affect the, um, that affect uh, basically how um, politics happens in the European, um, on the European continent between European states within the EU. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, you you already mentioned that. So we can now ask ourselves whether uh, there is any difference between the new member states uh, with regard to the stigmatization. Because of of course you focus on your in your book on on Polish case, but uh, do you see any differences between these uh, Central Eastern European countries? Yes, there are definitely a lot of differences, and like I emphasized before. Um, I wouldn't treat them in any way as, you know, a unified kind of uh, block or, or, or emphasize only the, the similarities. The similarities that they do share is a certain historical experience with which, which influences, like I said, um, strategic culture views on security policy. Also, um, yeah, also other things like questions about sovereignty, um, another connecting thing. Um, a connecting aspect, for example, during the migration crisis between the Visegrad countries, which um, saw the the use migration quota that was imposed on them by the EU. That's uh, why they um, contested it. Um, but there are also very significant differences uh, culturally, and in, in there also as international actors and their main reference points within Europe. Uh, like the Baltic states certainly have a more uh, Nordic um, reference point. Uh, um, uh, all these things uh, definitely affect also foreign policies, also a difference between medium-sized and smaller states. For Poland, this additional uh, maybe uh, aspect of experiencing stigma is that it's a medium-sized state so it expects to have a certain role in shaping the EU's foreign policy. We know from from other examples like the Benelux countries um, are rather they are more comfortable just uh, being part of 
uh, alliances and don't aim necessarily to be uh, for this leadership role as medium-sized states do. So there's definitely this aspect as well, but also in, in foreign policy, there are differences now in the current uh, second part of the Ukraine crisis, if you may call it that, we see differences in relations with Russia between Poland and the Baltics on the one hand, and for example, Hungary, which has a more positive relation with Russia. I wanted to follow up on that, asking you about uh, the differences between the Eastern states, the Eastern European states and the Southern Europe, whether this discourse of stigmatizations uh, also appear in case of, yeah, the South of, of Europe. Uh, yes, I, I, would, uh, I would definitely say that uh, uh, there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn between uh, the Eurozone crisis and, for example, the Iraq crisis, where, uh, or also in the case of Georgia, you, you could see that, that, um, that there was a certain dividing discourse between uh, like the East and the West on, uh, in the one case, and then the North and the South in the in the other case. Um, but there are also some differences between uh, the Southern states and um, in the sense that uh, the stigma was primarily constructed around economic issues. It wasn't, for example, linked to the authoritarian past of let's say Greece. Uh, it was a little bit milder, I think, as a stigma in that sense. And also, I, I don't think that, uh, in my perception, the identity, the European identity of these countries was really questioned. It was there was rather this emphasis that there couldn't be an EU without uh, these states, uh, even coming from from media or public intellectuals in the north. And uh, I think in that sense, it, it is very different. It might one of the reasons is, of course, also that in the eurozone crisis, there was really a lot at stake. Uh, for, for, for the North, um, because there was a real threat of the Eurozone crisis falling apart. And that would have had very uh, real and dire consequences also for countries like Germany. So there was really um, a lot of initiative at uh, actually resolving this conflict, even though there was, of course, the stigmatizing discourse and the, the verbal bashing. And there was not really such a comparable case in the, in the case of uh, the uh, Central European member states. I, I say so. Yeah. Um, now I wanted to ask you about the possibilities of overcoming the stigma. You also mentioned that uh, in your book briefly and in our conversation already, but do you believe that the stigma of a newcomer, latecomer to the EU can be ever overcome? Or in other words, Perhaps maybe you can see or observe any counter narratives within the EU that uh, construct Poland as a reliable partner in the EU relations. Yes, so I, I talk about overcoming stigma only very briefly at the end of my book. And, um, but I have to say, I have considered this question a lot and, and wondered about it a lot, both on a theoretical and an empirical sort of level. And I have to say, I have not quite worked out what overcoming stigma really means in a theoretical sense. And that is also because I found it a bit hard to actually find a positive uh, or a good empirical example of that. So uh, just to give you an example, a little bit departing from 
uh, our main subject, uh, often Germany is cited as this uh, case of, of successfully overcoming a stigma from its uh, World War II past and now being sort of this example of democracy, of um, a promoter of peace. Uh, but actually, um, when you look at Germany's foreign policy, it is really focused in a lot of ways uh, on these expiation rituals. So basically symbolically relieve, reliving the stigma. When you look at its relationship with Israel, for example, it's uh, it's kind of like reiterating always this the stigma and um, and dealing like dealing with it over again, also in the relationship with Poland. And on also um, it is really like, um, of, of course, I'm not saying that uh, the, this perpetrator stigma of Germany is in a way comparable to the latecomer stigma, but it's a very different stigma about the process of overcoming and um, uh, trying to draw parallels. And um, also in the case of Germany, there's always this threat that it can, uh, that it can reemerge. We just talked about Greece and there was also this uh, immediately the, the, the issue of reparations came up. So there's always the threat that the stigma could reemerge. So I, I wonder, for example, if in the case of Germany, it is not just a case of successfully dealing with the stigma and um, kind of turning it almost into something positive uh, rather than really overcoming it. And now going back to the latecomer states, I think what I try to show in my book is that these stigmatizing discourses they take on new forms and new shapes, uh, but continue to exist. And they are not overcome, certainly, by just time, as might have been expected when the states first joined. Like, like OK, now we are farmers, um, but in 10 years, we won't be. And that didn't turn out to be true. There was always this, this threat that they will be uh, labeled again if, if they, for example, deviate from uh, certain core um, decisions or certain core core member states and uh, the but um, what does change and I think that is rather the key to overcoming the stigma is that stigma is always in relation to the so-called normals and these normals are not in a vacuum they themselves evolve and change over time and uh, with that also the relationship between the stigmatized and the stigmatizing basically uh, changes as well. And in the EU and in the West, we do see a lot of changes um, going on, on very different levels. And, um, and like I've argued, Poland's uh, latecomer status is always associated with this, um, with wanting to be recognized as, as Western, as European, but what Western and European means has undergone a lot of changes since, since Poland has joined uh, the Western institutions. So first of all, the EU is no longer this avant-garde Europe that it used to be, if it ever was that. It was rather an idea that never uh, really materialized um, because in the area of security, it is moving to become a much more traditional security actor, uh, especially after the um, beginning of the Ukraine crisis. Uh, also with Brexit, um, it has challenged this idea that of an ever uh, closer union, that there's only one way forward, but it has actually shown that there are also reverse mechanisms. And, and this has 
created a lot of insecurities also within the EU and uh, therefore automatically changed uh, Poland's relationship to it. And some of these changes are positive for Poland, some are also very negative, but they definitely change the relationship. Um, yes, and uh, when it comes to foreign policy, because you asked, is Poland um, other narratives constructing Poland as a reliable partner? Actually, when it comes to foreign policy, there are no such fundamental um, points of contention anymore. And I think that this is largely the result of, um, of the fact that European security has a European, the European security outlook, the, Europe's foreign policy, for example, towards Russia has really changed a lot. But of course, also Poland has changed and is still this uh, transatlantic security actor, but it is uh, much more interested, uh, for example, in the idea of a European uh, security cooperation. And so it has also undergone, undergone a lot of changes cooperating more with the UN in, in, in these areas. And, but uh, the stigmatizing discourse as we've uh, discussed uh, earlier about, for example, the judicial reforms that has moved on to other areas. Yeah, perhaps these uh, geopolitical challenges might bring more opportunities for the Eastern states. And this is precisely what I wanted to ask in my last question to you. So how would you apply this, uh, your findings in your book to explain the recent um, migration and humanitarian crisis on the border with Belarus and the ongoing crisis on the Russo-Ukrainian border, actually? Yeah, yeah, it is interesting that you say uh, like they bring opportunities because in general, my book also looks at crisis because crises do change relationships a lot. And this is something that uh, they can can be kind of turning points. And it's true that a crisis is always was always seen as an opportunity to change something. And that's why I've looked at them. So I, I should have maybe said this, but um, yeah, in the, current, in the current crisis, you actually see it's, it is very different from the previous ones in that there are really no, um, there are not um, these certain essential differences regarding foreign policy that are, that you see as visible here. For example, how to deal with Russia is no longer a fundamental controversy. There is mainly unity of this in regards to this, even if you have uh, states that, um, that of course want to pursue a slightly different approach because they, they have, for example, strong economic interests and a good relation with Russia. And, um, but, um, but generally uh, it is rather a source of stigmatization when a country tries to have a positive relationship with Russia or pro-Russian. That has become something negative that used to be very different in the time that that I look at at the beginning of uh, basically that the book starts with. And uh, so this really should be should be emphasized. Um, so the approach to Russia is no longer um, a source of verbal scolding. Um, and uh, but this is not necessarily this unity is not necessarily a positive thing because it happens at a in a situation of very very deep uh, insecurity and actual security and threats in Europe that say no one would have really imagined in for example 2008 when the Russo-Georgian War started so actually uh, not not no one because uh, 
the, the, um, the Baltics and Poland actually uh, always emphasize this point. And in a way, their greatest security nightmare has been actually. Um, however, it was not really accepted as a main as a main position, and this has really and this has really changed now, mainly because of what happens and uh, and and um, and simply simply the, the events that have taken course. Um, also, the U.S. is very strongly involved in this, so really this idea of of Europe kind of. Uh, as an as a handling European issues by itself, it does hasn't really happened in that way, at least not in the face of of the security threat. So um, and now uh, similarly with the border crisis, this is also uh, interesting because generally um, generally Poland's approach. Uh, is obviously at the front lines of this, but generally its approach is, is actually supported by the EU and other member states. So in November, uh, the, um, uh, the EU amended its sanctions regime and uh, in response to the situation at the Belarusian border. And uh, yeah, basically to, um, I, I wrote down a quote, to respond to the in instrumentalization of human beings carried out by the um, Belarusian regime for political purposes. So currently Poland's position is, is backed by, um, by the EU and by NATO. And of course there has been uh, criticism of uh, the humanitarian crisis, for example, um, by NGOs and uh, certain media outlets, but it has never really materialized as a dominance as a dominant discourse, which is very different from the migration crisis in 2015. It's of course, uh, the reason is of course that it is a very different kind of uh, migration crisis. It is uh, artificially constructed by a hostile state. And um, however, uh, also the EU's foreign policy, um, uh, migration policy, I should say, has changed a lot since 2015. There is now more a talk also in like the old European countries uh, about the fortification of Europe's borders. So all these changes um, affect also uh, Poland's role as a security actor. Thank you for that response. I think on that note, we will end our conversation. So thank you very much, Dr. Krasnodemska. It was a pleasure to host you. Likewise, it was very nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. And if you would like to have more conversations from the Rev, then follow us on Spotify and on Twitter. Thank you very much and up to the next time.